The night may be long and the dark may be deep, but the answers are there to be found. Whether it's the normal, the abnormal, or the paranormal, you're in the right place. Let's go beyond reality. Sometimes it's the normal, sometimes it's the abnormal, sometimes it's the paranormal. Regardless of what it is, you can hear it right here on Beyond Reality Radio. Welcome to the program, everybody. I've been waiting for this show for a long time. Ask O'Ryan or Slick Eddie. Um, it's been a while since I have asked those guys to work hard on getting a guest that can talk about something that's actually very, very personal to me. Um, just because, you know, you, we all grow up with heroes. I had a couple. Uh, when I was growing up, Elvis Presley was one of my heroes, yes. But another TV show that I was just uh, obsessed with as a child, and uh, even as a young adult into my um, mid-adulthood, if you will, and I still really, really enjoy it. I just don't get to enjoy these kinds of pleasures as much anymore. But it was a TV show, Hogan's Heroes. And the, the program itself, in today's climate, I don't know that they could make it, frankly. I don't think they could do it. Because if you don't know what it's about, it's about uh, prisoners of war in a World War II Nazi prison camp who were uh, subverting the Nazis. And it was a comedy it was actually very, very funny. At least I believe it was. And it had, it had a great cast. People like Richard Dawson. Most people remember him now from um, the host of Family Feud. Robert Clary, who was actually a Holocaust survivor himself. He spent time in a concentration camp during World War II. Larry Hovis, Ivan Dixon, uh, Werner Klemper, who played uh, the Colonel Klink character. Uh, his father was actually a world-famous orchestra conductor. And Werner Klemperer had some success in acting, mostly serious acting. And then he takes on this comedic role and just knocks it out of the park, really, during the whole run of Hogan's Heroes. And then uh, John Banner, who played Sergeant Schultz. Most people know the line, I know nothing, I see nothing. And that's a famous Sergeant Schultz line. But the the, the show was just very well written, uh, very well acted. The characters were awesome. The cast was awesome. And it lasted six seasons. And it went off the air, I think it was 1971. And then uh, shortly after that, Bob Crane, who I don't think I mentioned yet, was the star. He played Colonel Ho- Colonel Hogan, um, had trouble finding work after Hogan's Heroes went off the air. And for seven years, he struggled looking for work in Hollywood. Got a few Disney roles in some pretty, what I would consider to be lesser Disney movies like Super Dad and, I don't know, Gus the the football kicking donkey or I don't even, I don't even know. He had a few roles in films like that. And, and he also made some guest appearances on some shows. And then he had, he had a show called the Bob Crane show, which didn't even last a season. Anyway, fast forward, uh, Bob Crane started traveling in the mid to late seventies doing dinner theater appearances because that was basically the only work he could get. And he was found brutally murdered in Scottsdale, Arizona, in 1978, and he was bludgeoned to death in his bed, blows to the head, with a video tripod, a camera tripod, which we'll talk about the significance of that in our discussion. And no one was ever convicted of the crime. Now, many people believe, including police and investigators and prosecutors, they know who did it. And that person was actually tried for the crime 14 years after the crime and was acquitted. For a lot of reasons. And we're going to get into all that. But this is one of the most amazing stories when it comes to true crime, Hollywood murder, true crime, unsolved mystery, true crime. It's the story of Bob Crane. And it really is the epitome of sex, lies, and videotape. Our guest tonight, John Hook, is, uh, has written a book about it. And we are going to talk about his book. We're going to talk about Bob Crane, what happened to him, what happened in the investigation, uh, and where it all stands right now, because uh, John has done a lot of in, uh, investigating himself in writing this book and has come to some conclusions as well. Did you know that online retailers like Amazon have constant deals that can save you money on the things you buy every day? It's no joke. Save 40%, 50%, even 80% on great products, and all you have to do is know about them. Noodle Shark is the way to be alerted when something good is coming your way. Noodle Shark is the social media page that lists great deals that not only save you money, but give you the deals before anyone else has them. All you have to do is find Noodle Shark on Facebook. Search it as The Noodle Shark. That's The Noodle Shark, because you deserve to save 
save too. Become a shark and save. Welcome back to Beyond Reality Radio. As I mentioned, I am very, very excited about tonight's discussion. Um, as a child, one of the things that I remember doing most vividly is rushing home from school and turning on the television. I don't know if it was 3 o'clock. I don't know if it was 4 o'clock. I, I don't know what time it was, but I what I knew it was was Hogan's Heroes time. And a day in 1978, um, I was crushed. I was still a, a, a young a kid at the time, um, but I heard the news about Bob Crane, who played Colonel Robert Hogan, Hogan on uh, Hogan's Heroes, was murdered. That murder remains unsolved today. Our guest tonight, John Hook, is an author. He's a news reporter and a TV anchor and has spent a couple of years not only investigating, but maybe finding some real answers into the murder of Bob Crane. And he wrote a book about it called Who Killed Bob Crane? John, welcome to Beyond Reality Radio. JV, appreciate it. Um, you sound very similar to uh, to my passion for, for this whole story, and, and that's what kind of propelled me to uh, investigate it, because I grew up with Crane and uh, came down here to Arizona State University to study journalism in 1978, right after Crane had been murdered, literally a month after he'd been murdered. So this has been with me not only through the TV show, but through the uh, the time that I moved here. I mean, my dorm was seven miles down the road from where Crane was murdered. So this has been with me my whole life. Wow. Now, what was it about Hogan's <clears throat> Heroes that made it such a... A uh, magical program in some ways. I, I have to be cautious about how you describe things yeah. that portray Nazis in war anymore. However, there was something magical about that program, and it only lasted six seasons. Yeah, um, I think it was the fact that Crane drove that program. It was a great cast, but Crane is a leading man, and, and this is a guy who really wanted to become the next Jack Lemmon. Crane was just a, a great leading man, a good-looking guy, devilish good looks, uh, quick-witted, funny. The show was brilliant. Um, you know, it's really popular in Germany, JV, believe it or not. The Germans love to watch the show <laughs> because <laughs> they like to laugh at the Third Reich now. They think it's absurd, and um, they love the bumbling characters on there, uh, Clank, Schultz, you know, oh, the whole yeah. crew. Yeah, it, 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 you're right. It was an amazing cast. It was written really, really well. I can't find it uh, on in syndication. Maybe it's on TV land or something now and then. It is. It's still out there. And, and this is why I think Crane still fascinates, because he's been with us now for, you know, he's been with us for 40 years, yeah. uh, more than 40 years. So, you know, this show went on the air in 65, and it's been with us for all those decades because it was in such heavy rerun rotation. So Crane has kind of been part of several generations that have, that have watched television. And um, and he still pops up on, on reruns on other shows. So, you know, he's he's been a figure, and it's one of these cases that continues to tantalize people because it is essentially unsolved. Although investigators will say they solved it, they just couldn't prove the um, the guilt of the man they believe killed Bob Crane. So um, let's talk a little bit about Bob Crane himself as a person. Um, very fascinating and talented man. Even prior to his uh, his work with Hogan's Heroes, he was a multifaceted guy. Oh yeah, he he was uh, a really accomplished drummer. He loved the big band sound. Loved Buddy Rich, Gene Krupa. They were his idols. Um, he even drummed for uh, the symphony in uh, in Connecticut. I mean, he was a very, very talented guy. And and then he ends up um, really starting to work in radio in Hornell, New York, in Bridgeport, Connecticut, um, small markets. And then he ends up, you know, New York starts to hear this guy bleeding into their market, and they pick him up. CBS picks him up. He's a brilliant radio guy, playing drums on the air, doing crazy stunts, reading, uh, making a mockery out of the commercial breaks that he would run. <laughs> you know, he, he did voices, he did sound effects. It was a nutty show. And, um, and finally, you know, they, they, uh, they decided, you know, we've got to get this guy out of the market. He's bleeding um, listeners from us in New York. We're going we're gonna to ship him off to the CBS station in L.A. because they didn't have a, a spot for him in New York at the CBS affiliate. So they send him to KNX in L.A. He ends up out there, and that's where he starts getting the attention uh, as a morning host at KNX for 15 years. And so he's a top-rated morning guy at KNX, nicknamed the king of the L.A. airwaves, 
And he's getting the top stars of the day, Marilyn Monroe, Jerry Lewis, Jack Lemmon. He got Ronald Reagan. He got all of these people. And so TV execs were listening to him on the way into work. They start thinking, you know, we've got we to gotta give this guy a screen test and see what he's got because he's hilarious. And that's how he made the foray into television. You, somewhere along the way, had a pivotal moment where you went from becoming a fan and someone interested and curious about uh, his career and his murder to someone who was going to investigate it. What happened? I interviewed Bob Crane's son. Um, I've been here in Phoenix for at Channel 10, uh, Fox 10, for 26 years now. So Bob, Bob Crane Jr. comes in in March of 2015, and I'm doing an interview with him on the book that he had just written about his father. And at the conclusion of the interview, and we really hit it off, he's, he's a great guy. He wrote the foreword for my book, Who Killed Bob Crane? And that really means a lot to me because it means that, you know, the guy closest to his father, you know, signed off on what we were doing and believed in what we were doing. So at the conclusion of the interview with Bob Jr., I just came away from it with a feeling that here's this guy. He doesn't know for sure who killed his father, you know, and it's been 40 years. And I just thought, this is so unbelievably unfair that he doesn't have any answers. And I just started thinking about it and, and, and focusing on it for several days after the interview. And then I can't tell you how it happened, JV, but just uh, uh, something came to me when I was driving. And I thought, you know, where is all that evidence? Maybe it would make a really cool story to go back and revisit the physical evidence in the Bob Crane case. And then I thought, you know, where's the blood evidence in the case? Because there was blood found in the, and we'll get into it, but in the rental car that, that Crane and John Carpenter, the guy who was um, accused of his murder, were driving around in Scottsdale when Crane was down here performing and when he was murdered. So I wanted to see, could we find the evidence? Could we find the blood evidence? And I started thinking, you know, the trial for John Carpenter happened in 1994. Here we are at that time in 2016, and DNA has come light years, light years in that amount of time. So I thought, you know, if we found the blood evidence, we could retest it. Because at the time when John Carpenter went on trial, DNA was in its infancy, and all of the tests, and there were three of them done, all of them came back inconclusive of the blood in John Carpenter's rental car. Was it Bob Crane's? Was it someone else? So I thought, let's find this evidence. Can we find it? And that set me off on the journey. But the first person I called to get they're okay, and their blessing on it was Bob Crane Jr. I said, Bob, are you sitting down? I have an idea. If I could find the blood evidence in the case and retest it using better DNA science, would you be okay with that? And there was just silence on the phone, and I thought I'd offended him. And he said, oh, my God, do you think that's possible? I said, I don't know. I don't know where the evidence is, but before I set out to look for it, I want to make sure you and your family are okay with what I'm, I'm thinking about doing. And he said, do it, do it. He was excited. And I thought, okay, uh, we're off. And that's how it started. Let's take a moment and take a look at Bob Crane's life from the point of Hogan's Heroes going off the air. Now, at that point, the show was hugely successful. Bob Crane was a household name, a household face. And suddenly his show is canceled uh, almost without warning, and he is found uh, kind of uh, lost in the sense that he didn't know what his next career move was, was. And then success kind of eluded him after that point, didn't it? It did. He did guest spots, you know, on Love Boat. He would pop up here and there. He'd be, he did the game show circuit. You know, he'd be on uh, some of these game shows as kind of the, the star guest. But his star in, in TV was kind of fading. And he was in such heavy rerun, and he was so identified with that Colonel Hogan character that I think it made some people, it, it made it difficult. He started doing a couple of movies for Disney, Super Dad, a couple of things, um, and he started to have to pay the bills to start to do dinner theater, the dinner theater circuits around the country. And so he produced and directed and starred in Beginner's Luck. This took him all around the country. Um, for you know, about four years, he got he got involved in that show. He traveled all over, and that's what brought him to Scottsdale in the summer of 1978 when he was murdered. Um, and during this time, as as everyone now has since learned, he had a very dark obsession uh, with videotaping his sexual exploits with women. 
And this was uh, it, it was an obsession. I mean, he would take this bulky early uh, early edition video equipment on the road with him everywhere he went. He'd meet women in bars. He'd bring them back to his um, his apartment that was rented for him by the people putting on Beginner's Luck, the show that he was doing. From city to city, he'd do a one one month stay in each city, and he would bring women back and videotape you know, him having sex with them so he could relive it later. So he was doing selfies before Kim Kardashian, sex tapes before Kardashian, Paris Hilton, you name it. He was, in a sense, a pioneer in that whole thing. I mean, if you want to look at it that way. But that dark obsession led him to this relationship with his best friend, John Carpenter, who was eventually charged with his murder. So the dinner theater circuit puts him into in Scottsdale. Um, yes, and and we have to remember. I think Hogan's Heroes went off the air in 1971 or somewhere That's about right. there. And That's he, right. And he was murdered in 78. There was only a seven year period here, right? Um, which you know, in, in anyone's lifetime, is a pretty short period of time. So he's in Scottsdale. Let's go through what happens. Um, this is pre investigation. This is just the circumstances of of uh, the last, I guess, few hours of his life. Yeah, he's in Scottsdale. He's nearing the end of his run of beginner's luck in Scottsdale. They rent a place for him on Chaparral Road. It's still there in Scottsdale. I've been there many times. Uh, they rent a place for him where all of the people who worked in the din- uh, Windmill Dinner Theater, the big stars would stay. And in fact, um, uh, you know, there were all kinds of stars that had, had stayed there. Um, and so the people in that apartment complex got to know that apartment because different stars were rolling in and out of there. And Crane was there during, during June of 1978, staying there. And, and you know, he was, he was having women over. He had a few parties for the cast over there. Um, so people were kind of, you know, it was interesting. You have a, a, a big famous guy. It was really known as the Cesar Romero apartment because the guy who played the Joker in Batman, he stayed there quite a bit doing dinner theater in Scottsdale. So that's what they nicknamed it, the locals. Uh, Crane staying there, and they were getting toward the end of the run of Beginner's Luck, and the guy, his friend, John Carpenter, who introduced him to video technology. Carpenter was a, a video salesman for Sony, uh, the first in the United States, uh, for home use. This is before it was widely available, though, to regular folks. Carpenter was a very successful guy with Sony. Uh, he wasn't just a, a hanger-on in a flake, as he's been portrayed. He had a very nice career with Sony and later Akai um, selling video equipment. He introduced Crane to video equipment, and this set the fire, lit the fuse for these two guys, because Crane had been taking Polaroids of his sexual conquests, but now he could videotape it. And Carpenter was a facilitator. He knew the gear. He knew the equipment. He knew all the technical side. He was kind of the... Um, he was a floor manager, but Carpenter also got in on the sex with either the second girl, who maybe wasn't as good-looking in the bar that they would both meet, uh, and Carpenter would go out on the road with Crane. He would call it a business trip, but he'd meet Crane almost every month, wherever Crane was playing. Carpenter would meet him for about a week, telling the company he was doing work, but he was really there to try to meet women and have sex and kind of ride the, the Bob Crane gravy train. So this brings Carpenter to Scottsdale in 78 for one of their typical visits. But on this particular visit, instead of staying together, Carpenter was put up at the Sunburst Hotel, uh, 30 seconds down the street from Bob Crane's apartment. Crane was starting to emancipate from Carpenter. By this point in 1978, Crane was as expert in this equipment as Carpenter was. He was starting to view Carpenter as a hanger-on, and what Bob Jr. described, his father told him, John's becoming a pain in the ass. His father was trying to break away from this guy in the summer of 78. And the theory from police is during that week in Scottsdale, Crane was trying to break off his relationship with Carpenter, saying, I can't do this anymore. Can't keep meeting you out on the road. It's, getting, it's cramping my style. Um, I'm, I'm not enjoying it, and I don't want you to come out anymore. And the Carpenter took it badly and felt like after all he'd done for this guy, that the big star was kicking him to the curb. And he got really angry. And that anger, according to police, erupted in Carpenter crushing Crane's skull with a camera tripod. 
which is almost symbolism. The police kind of thought, this is interesting, the weapon he chose. It's almost symbolic. There's no uh, more textbook textbook example of sex lies and videotapes here. That's it, yeah. And that's really and, what it sums you it up. You know, and Greg Kinnear did a movie on it, you know, Autofocus, with uh, William Defoe playing the role of John Carpenter. It's a widely acclaimed film, actually. It was really, really well done. I quarrel with, with uh, Paul Schrader, the director, his interpretation of what happened uh, the night of the murder. But other than that, it kind of depicted their relationship, I think, pretty accurately. I want to get back to that because I've seen Autofocus many times. Uh, it's actually one of the movies I like to watch over and over. Um, but before we get to that, let's go back to the, to the, uh, the murder itself. The murder occurs. Uh, who finds the body? And what happens next? Because obviously there was some uh, what I would call shabby police work following the discovery of the body. Yeah, uh, great point. Um, Crane plays the Windmill Dinner Theater on the night of the 28th, June. Finishes the show. Carpenter is in the audience. Um, this is only a four-person show. It's Crane and, and, and uh, three other stars. Carpenter is there. He's in the front row at the VIP table, as he usually is. And Crane finishes, and uh, he does his usual, makes his rounds with the people who are there signing autographs. They leave the windmill. They come out to the car in the parking lot of the windmill. This is dark. This is, this is a really dark area. This is on the outskirts of Scottsdale, which is now right in the center of Scottsdale, believe it or not. But at that time, it was kind of way out there on Scottsdale Road and Shea Boulevard. Um, they get out to the car, and the right rear tire is flat. And Crane is in this dark parking lot with Carpenter. And police would later think that this was intentional, that this might have been the first attempt to maybe kill Bob Crane. You know, kill him in a darkened parking lot where he's stooped over, maybe trying to change a flat tire. Well, Crane wasn't going to have anything to do with a flat tire. He saw it. He said to Carpenter, he goes, oh, my God. He goes, let's just drive to Arco across the street and get the tire changed. So Crane just drove on it. So if that was an attempt on his life, it failed. Um, they just drove to the Arco, got the tire changed, went back to Crane's apartment, um, and they decided to go out to the clubs that night after, after the performance and meet girls. And so they ventured out, as they usually do, and uh, met a couple of girls and, and then went to the, the Starburst uh, coffee shop. This is uh, at Carpenter's spot where he was staying for the week. They have a late breakfast. This is the usual way that Crane would operate. It's about 2 in the morning. Uh, Crane's got a date. Carpenter's got a date. And that's the last time most people ever saw Bob Crane. Crane went out in the parking lot with his date. Carpenter drove off with his date. And the rest now is conjecture as to what happened that night. But Crane is later found the next morning on the 29th. Uh, by his co-star, Victoria Berry, who Crane had bedded a couple of times before. Victoria Berry knocks on the door. They had an appointment to do an overdub on a scene from Beginner's Luck that Berry was using to try to get work in Hollywood. But the audio was bad, so she wanted to redo the audio. And so Crane, again, he was good at this video equipment. They would take the scene, and they would overdub the audio in Crane's apartment. She knocks on the door, no answer. They're supposed to meet at 2 o'clock. It's about 106 degrees outside. She knocks on the door, no answer. She calls out, Bob, Bob. Um, and then she just thinks, well, maybe he's out by the pool in the back. So she turns the doorknob almost reflexively, and it opens. Now, Bob Crane was really careful about locking his doors. Um, and, and this would come to everyone later, but... The door was open. She walks in. It's a completely darkened apartment. Uh, everything is, all the blinds are closed. All the drapes are closed. It's really dark in there. She, her eyes are trying to adjust. She's looking around. The living room is familiar because it's got all the video equipment in it set up for, you know, whenever Crane would have sex. All the cameras were positioned. And uh, it led to the Arcadia door out back that looked out on the pool. She pulled the drapes apart and looked out there. And there was no one at the pool. In fact, the pool was closed that day. They were, they were working on it. She ducks back in, walks backwards where she'd come from, takes a right, heads toward his bedroom door, and slightly pushes it 
and sees a form in the bed. She thinks it's a woman because there's all this dark hair, what she thinks is dark hair. It's actually streaks of matted blood and hair in the bed. She thinks it's a woman, and she thinks, oh, my God, one of Bob's dates committed suicide in here. She screams. She's freaking out. As she gets a closer look, she thinks, oh, man, this might be a man. She actually thinks it might be um, she thinks it might be John Carpenter in there because they're such close friends. She just can't believe it might be Bob because he's disfigured. His face is bashed in from the blows to his head. And she looks. She's not sure who's in there. She runs screaming out of the apartment. They call the police, and that starts the investigation. And then what happens from there is just, um, it's crazy. But police arrive and and um, they start taking pictures and videotape of all the apartment. Early video of this, it, it rarely is done at that time in 1978. And it's it's on my website, whokilledbobcrane.com. It's fascinating video. We uncovered it in the course of the investigation. It had never been seen before um, by the public, and it's really, really interesting, that crime scene. So, John, at what point did the investigation turn its sights to John Carpenter? Almost immediately, uh, JV, because Carpenter uh, is is known as a close friend of Crane, and it really started to coalesce when, during the course of the investigation, cops are in the apartment uh, right after the murder. Victoria Berry's there. They're taking a statement from Victoria Berry sitting in the kitchen of Crane's apartment, his bloody body is in the bedroom about 30 feet away. They're investigating, taking crime scene photos. The phone rings. The phone rings, and it broke the silence in the apartment. Everybody was kind of like, oh, okay. And they actually directed Victoria Berry to pick up the phone. She picks up the phone, and it's John Carpenter. Mm. And the detective in, in the apartment at the time um, directs her to take the call, and she does, and he says, uh, it's John, uh, and she goes, it's Victoria. I go, oh, hey, Victoria, how's it going? Uh, is Bob around? No, Bob's not here. She just played dumb. And he goes, well, I'm just checking on him. Uh, I, I, you know, I got back to L.A., and uh, everything's fine, and uh, just tell him to call me when he's, uh, when he's good, and, you know, I got back. Let him know I got back, and everything's fine. And... Um, he calls, he calls a second time. In between this, Bob Crane Jr. calls to thank his dad for sending him a birthday card. And Victoria again plays dumb uh, and, and doesn't want, you know, doesn't certainly want to tell, tell uh, Bob Jr. That, that her father is, is his father is dead. Right. And then there's another, a second call from Carpenter. And then at that point, uh, the detective, as Barry starts to talk, the detective pulls the phone away from her and gets on the phone and identifies himself. And Carpenter says, uh, yeah, this is John Carpenter. And, uh, you know, I just want to let you guys know I'm in L.A. and everything's fine. And uh, he never asks why they're there in the apartment. Never asks. Hmm. The only thing the detective offers is that there's uh, uh, Bob's not here. There's a situation here. And um, they, start, they start kind of chatting. And Carpenter starts to really uh, divulge um, info about the apartment and where the camera equipment is. He's kind of trying to befriend the cops as if I can be a friend to you. I can help you guys out, whatever it is. Never ask, you know, is anything wrong? Was it a robbery? Is somebody hurt? Is there a problem? He, he, he's inexplicably not interested in that. And that really got the attention of investigators because they're like, who is this carpenter guy and why does he keep calling? Well, later on, they discovered that not only was carpenter calling Crane's apartment, um, and they would later come to believe he was sniffing around for info had Crane's body been discovered. Remember, this is all pre- pre-internet, pre-instant communication. Right. So he was kind of waiting for the announcement that something, you know, if he's the guy, he's waiting for something to leak out. And nothing had come out of it. And it was already in the afternoon. It had been hours. Um, he had also called the Windmill Dinner Theater that afternoon, twice. Now, you know, this was highly unusual, according to everybody who knew Bob Crane, because they said Carpenter would know Crane's routine better than anyone. 
that Crane would never be at the windmill dinner theater in the afternoon. Carpenter was calling, asking, is Bob there? Crane never went there, and Carpenter certainly knew that. He would only show up minutes before the performance. He drove the stagehands crazy doing that. And so Carpenter's calling around the windmill. He's calling his apartment, and police believe this is a classic killer returning to the crime scene, in this case telephonically, and they just felt it just had all the hallmarks of a guilty guy trying to go on a fact-finding mission and find out what was going on, what did cops know, did they have any suspects. The obvious uh, reaction you would have expected from a John Carpenter in that situation, particularly in the second phone call when the detective gets on the phone, is what's what happened to Bob, where is he, what's going on there? But he never asks that question. Never asks. And, and Ron Dean was the detective for Scottsdale PD. And Dean said he didn't ask because he already knew. Had anybody witnessed, I think in autofocus in the film, there's a portrayal of an argument between Bob Crane and John Carpenter the night of the murder in a public place. Did that really happen? It did. It did. Um, it's, in, it's, it's in all the documentation. The cops um, talked to all the people at the establishment. I believe it was Bobby McGee's where it happened. Um, they were actually kind of at a lunch in the afternoon the day before. And they were having a heated conversation that got very emotional to the point where the, the waiting staff noticed it and were afraid to approach the table. Both of them were being very curt with the wait staff. They didn't want to be interrupted. And um, apparently Crane was fairly animated and Carpenter was just sitting there. And, and the police believe that this was the quote-unquote breakup conversation where Crane said, look, I can't have you coming out on the road anymore. You're cramping my style. Part of this may have been that Crane was, his, his obsession with women and videotaping, this was starting to leak out in the Hollywood circles. It had gotten up the chain at Disney, and it was starting to affect his career. And this is something that Disney would not want to touch. You can imagine you know, at that time, Disney is Bambi, and, uh, you know, it's all wholesome stuff. Right. They don't want their leading man involved in this kind of stuff. So Crane, according to his son, Bob Jr., was in the process of trying to change his lifestyle, trying to dial it back, be a little more discreet. Um, Crane was pretty overt about some of this stuff. He didn't want his viewing public to know about it, but he certainly showed Polaroids to coworkers. To staff, he would talk openly about betting a girl the night before. He bragged a lot about this stuff. He was a ladies' man, and he loved it. And he wanted people to know he was a ladies' man. And so, um, as you know, he's only two weeks away from turning 50 at this point. So he's going through some self-reflection. And he may have been thinking, you know, my career's in jeopardy if I don't dial it back. So he may have just thought, I've got to get rid of some of these people who are not good for me. And he... Apparently, according to his son, Bob Jr., Bob Crane felt John Carpenter was in that category, somebody that he really didn't need hanging around anymore. Similar to an alcoholic uh, having to distance himself from his drinking buddies. There you go. Perfect analogy. Yes. So John Carpenter is identified quickly as a suspect. We know that um, ultimately he was put on trial, and we'll get to that. But um, as they start to look at him, what type of things do they uncover in this initial investigation that continue to support the idea that John Carpenter is the guilty uh, person? Well, they, they immediately find out that, that Carpenter had been hanging around with Crane the entire week before his murder. He had come in on Sunday night. Crane was murdered on, on Thursday. And... You know, it, it was it was one of these things where they're like, who is this carpenter guy? And he happens to be the guy, one of the last people to see him, and who had left hastily that morning for a flight back to L.A. In Crane's day planner by his bedside that was spattered with Crane's blood from the blows, the two vicious blows to his skull, there's a note in there that says, um, June 29th, John leaves 10 a.m., I've seen this. I've seen this item in evidence. And police, you know, the, the plan was for, for Crane to take Carpenter to the airport. But they come to find out that that morning that didn't happen. Now, you can speculate as to why. Maybe it's because Bob Crane's dead. He can't drive John Carpenter to the airport. 
Carpenter tries to suddenly hustle up a limo that morning from the Sunburst Hotel to Sky Harbor. Um, that's going to be impossible because his flight is like an hour away from, from departing. So they get him a cab. He takes a cab to the airport, leaves his rental car at the Sunburst, telling the people at the Sunburst that there's a problem with the car with the dome light on, on the inside. He said that when he tapped the brakes, the dome light would come on. So the people at the Sunburst put the car, uh, they put an order in it to get it fixed. It gets towed to a Chevy dealer. It was a, a Chrysler Cordoba, uh, 1978. Uh, it gets towed to Lanker Chevrolet, driven, but eventually towed because it broke down on the way. So when police finally get to that car, they want to know the car that Carpenter was in. When they get to that car and they look at it at Lanker Chevrolet, they open it up. Uh, Detective Barry looks in it and sees blood smears on the right passenger door, streaks and stains, seven of them. He immediately calls the detectives, and says, there's something in the car you guys need to see. You need to get down here. They get down. They call in DPS, our state police, Department of Public Safety. DPS takes it in and processes the car. So now you've got blood in the car from the guy who hastily left the morning that Bob Crane is murdered, who's Bob Crane's best friend, who vanishes the morning Bob Crane is murdered, heads back to L.A., when the blood is tested, it comes back B positive. B positive is found in only 9% of the population. What's Bob Crane's blood type? B positive. Now it's game on. You've got Bob Crane's blood in the car of his best friend who leaves that morning for the airport. And now you're starting to say, this may be our guy. There's blood in the car. It's not a lot of blood, by the way, very little, but streaks and smears are visible. There's blood on the automatic uh, window switch. And um, what would later become the theory in the case is that the murder weapon was propped up against that passenger door, and as Carpenter drove, and they believe it was a tripod, a camera tripod, a collapsed tripod with about a six-pound head on it or a four-, four- or five-pound head on it, that, that could inflict some serious damage, that as that car would accelerate and brake, it left these streaks and smears on the door. The murder weapon left the blood on the passenger door. That became the theory in the case as time went on. John, we've got Bob Crane's best friend, John Carpenter, behaving suspiciously with blood in his rental car that matches Bob Crane's blood type. Of course, there's no DNA testing in 1978. The police believe that the murder weapon was a video camera tripod. Did they ever recover the murder weapon? Never, never. Um, they looked high and low for it, uh, but they never found it. They, they actually searched the canal that was right near Crane's apartment, the Winfield Place apartments. There was a canal out there, an irrigation canal for Salt River Project, pretty big canal. And they, they uh, emptied it. They also had divers in there looking 75 feet um, north and south. They never found anything. They found golf clubs. They found tire irons. And, and those became originally the, um, the thought that, that, that um, you know, it may have been a tire iron or something like that that killed Crane. But eventually they came to the tripod conclusion. So was there ever any uh, in, uh, indication from John Carpenter that when his ride from Bob Crane did not appear uh, to take him to the airport, that he made an effort to try to reach him? Because um, it seems like he would have have to explain that. Well, he, he claimed, he told police that uh, both of them had struck out the night before, that neither of them had had been able to bed the two girls that they were with that night, and that after Carpenter dropped his date off, uh, Carol Newell, that he called Crane at his apartment and said, I struck out, blah, 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 and Crane was telling him that he had struck out also. And Carpenter claims that he told Crane that night, I know you're busy the next day, um, I'll just drive myself to the airport. And he says that's how it ended, that they, they had two phone calls that night, um, Carpenter calling Crane from his hotel room right down the street, and that that was it. One of the, the um, photographs I remember seeing along the way of the inside of the rental car showed the blood streaks, but there was also some tissue there, wasn't there? That's right, yeah. And this is all chronicled in my book, Who Killed Bob Crane? Um, the only thing that really changed, Carpenter did not go on trial because county attorneys down here at the time, Chuck Hyder, uh, 
Tom Collins, they did not like the circumstantial nature of the case. They just didn't feel they had a murder weapon. They couldn't place Carpenter at the scene. So they never put him on trial. And so the case languished until a new county attorney came in, and that was Rick Romley in 1989. Romley said, I'm going to get to the bottom of this crane thing. This thing needs to be adjudicated. We need to solve this. So that's when the case got life. But but the only thing that had really changed between 1978 and 1992 when, when Carpenter was arrested was uh, a review of the evidence that the new county attorney, Rick Romley, prompted. He said, let's start from scratch. Let's act as if we know nothing about this case and start from the beginning. So Jim Raines and Barry Vassell, two detectives, worked that case just unmercifully. They worked it top to bottom, and they came back to the same conclusion. It is Carpenter. He's the guy. They, they, they followed down other leads, and they said, it's just not there. This is a guy. Now, what had changed in that time was photographs uh, that were taken of the Chrysler Cordoba when it was impounded. And there was, you know, there were only six photos that, that they found. But Jim Raines knew there had to be more, because in a case like this, you never just take six photographs. Right. He said there have to be more photographs. They searched the DPS uh, lab, they looked everywhere, and they finally found the negatives. And it was a roll of 21, and on that roll was a picture of a tissue speck on the door, which looks like a little cluster of salmon eggs under, you know, under magnification. And it was determined that that was brain tissue, um, subcutaneous tissue, right below the scalp and above the cranium. Again, from the murder weapon, they believe, deposited on the door. Now, there's, there's a lot of discussion about whether that speck of tissue was collected and lost or never collected at all. But they had a photograph of it. And they said, okay, not only do we have type B blood, Bob Crane's blood type in the car, now we've got a speck of brain tissue. This is an absolute sign in John Carpenter's car that John Carpenter's a killer. So that, that speck of tissue, the tissue speck, became a real linchpin in the case. The problem was at trial, when they put John Carpenter on trial, they couldn't produce the actual piece of evidence. They couldn't find it. All they had was a photograph. And Carpenter's defense just savaged them at trial and said, you can't draw anything from a picture. You can't draw any conclusions. And the judge actually instructed the jury to disregard it. Wow. So John Carpenter is acquitted of, of the crime in that trial. Uh, but how convinced were prosecutors then? And um, we'll get to your work in just a moment. But up until the point where you started looking into this, how convinced were people that John Carpenter was the OJ of his time? Uh, they absolutely believed it. and They thought this is the guy. They just could not prove it at trial. There were a couple of problems. The tissue spec, which you've mentioned, was one of them. The other one was that, and you just touched, touched on it, JV was O.J. Simpson. This was going on at the exact same time that Carpenter went on trial in 1994. There was a lot of discussion about DNA. By that point, when they put Carpenter on trial, they did test the blood in the car three times to try to get an answer as to not only is it type B, but is it Bob Crane's blood? This was one of the big questions, and everything came back inconclusive at that time. And with O.J. going on simultaneously when Carpenter went on trial, the jury is hearing constantly about DNA because of O.J. So at trial, the jury says, hey, you know, where's the DNA on this thing? The jury members were clamoring. They wanted DNA. They'd been hearing about it. They're like, where's the DNA on this? You know, don't just tell me it's his blood type. Prove to me it's Bob Crane's blood. They desperately wanted that. I interviewed jurors in my, in my book, Who Killed Bob Crane, about this issue. And the jurors said if they could have presented that it was not only Bob Crane's blood type, but that it was actually Bob Crane's blood, we would have convicted John Carpenter, no question. Wow. So um, we fast forward a number of years. You uh, interview Bob Crane Jr., and you recognize that this thing needs to be solved one way or another. How did you start? The relationships that I have made with the county attorneys and law enforcement down here through being here for, you know, 
26 years. Um, I had good relationships with these people, and especially the county attorney, Bill Montgomery, the new county attorney. I, I reached out to Bill, and I just basically said, Bill, um, this case is, for all intents and purposes, it's a cold case, but you guys put the guy on trial. You thought killed Bob Crane, and you got, you got an acquittal. <clears throat> so I said, Bill, if, if you've got the evidence, would you allow me to retest it? With, with your office handling the actual evidence, not me handling it, but there are people handling it, we'll, we'll pay for it. Can we send it off to the best lab around for this kind of stuff, which was Cellmark, which became Bodie, Bodie Cellmark Forensics in Lorton, Virginia. They did all the DNA on OJ, JonBenet Ramsey, and Bob Crane, by the way, early on. So we sent it to that lab. Uh, Bill Montgomery, the county attorney, allowed me to do it. And I can't tell you, JV, I'm, you know, it sounds like I'm bragging, um, but this just doesn't happen. Reporters, they, when, we, when we sent this stuff off, the, the people at the lab, they said, Mr. Hook, we don't have a protocol for a reporter testing evidence in a cold case. I'm like, I, I know. And so we had to get the county to keep signing off on everything we did because somebody, an official agency, had to sanction it because they're like, we just don't, we've never done this. It's never happened. That's how out of the box this whole thing was. But, but Bill Montgomery's position was, I think, the right one. He said, look, John, he goes, I trust you. He said, if, if we can learn the truth about this case, even if it's not in a court of law, for the family and the people who survived this thing, and it, it haunts them to this day, that's valuable. So I'm, I'm green-lighting it. Go for it. And uh, he let me do it. There's a great video on your website which sums up a lot of this as well, and it shows you standing next to boxes of evidence. You actually had access to all the original evidence. Um, first of all, what did that feel like? And um, what evidence was important to you at that point, this many years after uh, the murder and after the trial of John Carpenter? Well, the blood evidence was really important, obviously. But going through that, it, JV, it's really weird. It's like walking into someone's storage closet. It's Bob Crane's personal effects. It's his TWA luggage tag, the keys to the apartment where he was murdered, um, all kinds of personal things, letters, stuff that was seized as evidence in his apartment. I mean, they basically boxed up that apartment and moved it to a storage locker. Um, but there were also the audio tapes, interviews with all of the witnesses that I listened to, to hear John Carpenter when police are accusing him of murdering Bob Crane. It's one thing to read the transcript, but to listen in John Carpenter's voice and hear the emotion as police are saying, you killed him, didn't you? Because you were angry. Why don't you just get right to it? Tell us what happened that night in Scottsdale. And then Carpenter goes silent. It is amazing stuff. And then there's, of course, the, the videotapes, the, the videotapes of Crane having sex with women. That was also seized because they had to start to piece together, you know, was there a woman who he had scorned who wanted to kill him? Right, there was was also, there a jealous husband yeah, who there, wanted to kill Bob Crane? There was also talk of the possibility of a jealous husband being involved. Absolutely. Absolutely. All things were on the table. So they had to piece through those videotapes to try to sort through this case. And this is all chronicled in my book, Who Killed Bob Crane? It's, it's a fascinating journey, not only the crime part, but kind of the journalistic journey to try to get to the truth on this thing. It's, it's really an interesting case. I went into it really as a TV story, but about two months into it, I, I turned to my photographer, Joe Tillman, and I said, i got to write a book about this. There's just no way I can put everything in a TV story. And that's what that's what started the the whole idea of doing the book. So John Carpenter is acquitted, and he actually ended up dying not long after that acquittal, right? Four years afterwards, yes. And because he was acquitted, uh, regardless of what your investigation turned up, uh, he couldn't be tried again. No, no, that would have been double jeopardy. He'd been acquitted, but he never recovered uh, from the stigma. People still thought that he was probably the guy who killed Bob Crane. He really had trouble finding work uh, from a guy who was making, you know, six figures selling um, high-end video equipment and teaching people like Red Skelton, Elvis, uh, how to use this stuff. He took a precipitous fall. He ended up working 
uh, as basically a stereo repairman in L.A. His wife, who stayed with him through all of this, um, called the Maricopa County Attorney's Office when he died of a heart attack in 94, called them up, according to Jim Raines, the investigator in this case, and said, I hope you guys are happy. You killed him. Hmm. She was bitter. They were bitter. Uh, uh, you know, the people around John Carpenter, some of the people in his orbit, did not believe he did this. And this is the interesting thing about our DNA tests on the blood. It creates some doubt as to whether John Carpenter was the guy. Oh, really? Yes. Now, basically, what you needed to do um, at this point in time is make the connection between Bob Crane and the blood beyond just blood type, but you were trying to make a DNA connection between Bob Crane himself and the blood that was in the rental car. That's what you set out to do. That's exactly right. Yep. So in the evidence, we finally found the vials that had cutouts of the vinyl and the felt on the right car door, passenger door of John Carpenter's Chrysler Cordoba. Those pieces were cut put into vials, and tested for, for DNA. They were inconclusive in 94, 93. They tested them as well. Inconclusive every time. We get to them, and we send them in. And Bodie, I finally have a conversation with them after they got the samples and they had done the testing. They, they told me one thing. They said, this is probably the last shot. And that's why the cut line of my book, Who Killed Bob Crane?, the other subtitle is the final close-up, not a throwaway line. This is literally the last look forensically at this case because to do it, the final test, they had to go all in and say, we're going to extract whatever is left on these samples because there was not visible blood on those samples anymore. They'd been tested so much there was no longer blood. We are down to trying to find cellular material on the car door. So we run that round of testing, and the result was a shocker. I'm not sure where I want to go with this, John, um, because we want people to read the book, but how much are you willing to tell us of what you found? Well, I, I will tell you that the, the findings cast out because um, you, you would expect, and I expected, that we would get Bob Crane's blood definitively on the door of the Chrysler Cordoba that John Carpenter uh, drove around in, and that is not what we got. Wow. Let's um, let's take a step back here because that's a bit of a bombshell. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'll say. I mean, I you know, people. Um, I fully expected that we would get Bob Crane's blood definitively yeah. and DNA, and and I, my idea of writing the book was to close the case on this. My original working title on this book because I was so certain that the result was going to come back that way. We just needed to test it, right. finally. Right. That the, the cut line was the final close-up, and I, and, and I believed that the book title was going to be Case Closed. And you had to, you had to rethink that after you got the results. Absolutely. Wow. It was stunning. It wow. was really stunning. Tell me what the importance of uh, John Carpenter's swim trunks was. Uh, it's interesting, and I and I have touched those swim trunks. These were trunks that Carpenter uh, was wearing when he would frolic around in the pool at Bob Crane's apartment. Uh, you know, the two hung out like frat brothers. Um, and so Carpenter had swim trunks over there and had left them over at Crane's apartment uh, to dry out. And when Crane was getting ready, you know, the, the plan was for Crane to take Carpenter to the airport on the morning of June 29th, 1978. And when police entered the apartment, there are John Carpenter's swim trunks laid out on the floor of the apartment sitting there in the pathway to the front door. Crane had become a little forgetful as he was approaching 50. He needed to write himself reminders. You know, he was a little bit scatterbrained. He was a typical artist, um, brilliant at his craft, but a little bit sketchy in conducting his life. Um, I, you know, I know this. <laughs> um, I know this from people I know, and it's just it's it's just kind of a thing. And so Carpenter laid out those trunks, police believe, to remind himself to bring them. Otherwise, he would have forgotten them to bring them when he picked up Carpenter to take him to the airport that morning. But there they were, laid out, nice and clean, 
in the entryway. And police believe that those trunks were a telltale sign that the plan that had been agreed upon for Crane to take Carpenter to the airport obviously changed. And police believe because there was no forced entry in the apartment that whoever killed Bob Crane was let in willingly by Bob Crane. So now you're down to, is it a woman that he let in that night, late at night after striking out at the bars? Or was it Carpenter who came over late at night, which would not be, uh, that would not be out of character at all. And in fact, Carpenter told his date that night when they were at the bar that later on he was going to go to Crane's apartment and hang out with him, have a drink maybe, and wait for his morning flight, and then he was going to leave with him. At any rate, that never happened. Carpenter suddenly took a cab to the airport. So cops thought those trunks were significant, that that, that is a sign that the plan had changed, and uh, that whoever entered that apartment, that it was they believe it was John Carpenter. So you find in your work uh, that you get results that you didn't expect. Um, yeah. And uh, the book, again, is called Who Killed Bob Crane? And uh, that that is an exhaustive work uh, with a lot of material. I mean, how many years ago? It was 41 years ago that this murder took place. Yeah, exactly. And so we had to kind of piece it back together. But once you get that evidence, uh, JV, you are right back in it. You're right back in the moment. Um, and, and we got to handle all that evidence uh, with gloves, of course. But just to... You know, to to open that time capsule was unbelievable. Had to be unbelievable. unbelievable. Yeah, had to be. I want to ask you about your. Uh, you said you had a, a bit of a difference with the film autofocus. You were a little. Uh, I don't know what the word was that you used, but you felt as though the portrayal of the murder evening was not accurate. What was the difference that you saw? Well, if you look, and in my book, by the way, we we put a lot of crime scene photos in there and photographs that are very important to the case. So not only um, in the book is the text and also, by the way, the verbatim from the police interrogations of John Carpenter, the two that were done, which are fascinating. I thought the verbatim was important because it gives people a little glimpse into how Crane and Carpenter operated. Um, There are pictures in there. And one of the photos in there is of Crane's apartment. Now, I mentioned the Arcadia door that led out to the pool when Victoria Berry discovered Bob Crane's body. There, that's where they lined up. Crane lined up all of the video equipment. There's a tangle of video equipment. There's these big, bulky decks, um, huge decks that look like suitcases. These are how the, the old you know, um, home video camera stuff operated in, the, in, in those days, in 1978, the big video um, cassette decks. They were big and bulky, and they were on stands, and there was a tangle of cords and wires blocking that Arcadia door. In Schrader's film, Schrader has the intruder coming in in the dark through that Arcadia door that had been left unlocked. Mm-hmm. I just don't believe that would have happened. Crane was a light sleeper. If you're trying to enter that apartment at night through the Arcadia door, you would invariably knock stuff over. You know, unless you had a flashlight, that's an idiotic idea if you're trying to murder somebody. No flashlight. You're going in there. It's dark. There's too much stuff blocking that Arcadia door. It would have been impossible to get through that without causing a noise and waking your your victim up. So, you know, the belief, and I believe police were right, the person who came into Crane's apartment and killed him that night was let in willingly by Bob Crane because there was no sign of a struggle. Crane was in the fetal position, sleeping comfortably in his bed and he was bludgeoned to death so the implication would be that the person was let in bob said hey i'm going to bed he went to bed the person was hanging out and then took advantage of him of it when it went exactly and the cops believe that points to john carpenter because crane would have been comfortable given their history with having carpenter hang around in fact, Carpenter could have said, I'm going to watch some of the, some of the porn movies you've made. You know, they would do this all the time. So uh, Crane would say, okay, well, I'm going to bed. Now, the interesting thing is Crane is found in his boxer shorts when he was found dead. This kind of gets away from the idea that he was with a woman. Because right. if he was with a woman in bed and she killed him, he would have been naked. He usually slept in the nude. So to have boxer shorts on may mean that he got up, he may have already gone to bed, knock on the door, 
and I, I forward this in my, in my book. I, I advance my theory through all the investigation, what I think happened that night. That there's a knock on the door, and Crane is naked. But there's a knock on the door, and he doesn't know who's there. He's thinking it might be a woman, but he's not sure. So he throws on boxer, boxer shorts to answer the door. And then suddenly, it's somebody he knows, and he says, listen, I'm tired, I'm going back to bed. But maybe not a woman. Maybe John Carpenter. And so he just leaves the boxer shorts on and climbs back into bed and gets, gets to sleep. And then is killed. Speculation isn't always productive, but it can be fun sometimes. So I can see John Carpenter coming in at that point and Bob saying, remember, when I send you home tomorrow, that's it. Could be. That's a very interesting point. Did they have another little discussion that triggered him? Carpenter was known to have a wicked temper, even by the testimony of his own son at trial. He said that that when Carpenter was upset, that Carpenter would get what he described as tunnel vision. And the only thing on his mind was taking out whoever was giving him a problem. And that's, that's, an, interesting, that's an interesting fact from his own son. John, I could talk about this all night. Um, we, we don't have, <laughs> I've enjoyed it, JB. Good stuff. <laughs> we don't have that kind of time. Um, will this remain one of Hollywood's great unsolved mysteries? Well, I, you know, I think I understand, and I think the book forwards a um, advances a story that I think is plausible, uh, very plausible, and you know that's why I think it's worth reading it. It's it's fascinating anyway to kind of get the backstory of how this this investigation went down and all of the stuff in Who Killed Bob Crane. But I, I would say this: people have said to me, you know. Um, you set out to absolutely solve it. Do you think you did? And I said, well, I don't know. But I will say that, that the JonBenet Ramsey case is, is unsolved. Right. But it makes it no less alluring than the day it happened. And maybe even more interesting over the long haul that there are always going to be questions about what happened. It's one of those ultimate whodunits. And we don't have a lot of those, especially with celebrities. Bob Crane's about it, and JonBenet Ramsey, who wasn't a celebrity, is another one, and that's about it. We don't. Most of these, we think we have the answer. Sometimes the answer is elusive. Uh, America seems to have a fascination with true crime and particularly murder. Uh, we saw a great deal of success on Netflix with a program, um, a, a miniseries. I don't know what you call it, but Making a Murderer, The Staircase. Yes. A lot of these popping up. What's our fascination with this stuff? I just think you. People want to get to the bottom of something. And I, in the foreword of the book, Who Killed Bob Crane, I talk about this. If people really believe deep down, it's kind of a human thing. They want, if something's wrong, they want the people who did it held accountable. And it bothers them when there's no resolution. It's just kind of a human trait. And so this plays right into that. You've got a guy in the prime of his life murdered. Now, yes, was he leading a risky lifestyle? No doubt. Did he deserve to be murdered over it? Absolutely not. Um, he's doing what a lot of people in Hollywood were doing at that time and continue to do. That isn't a death sentence. So you've got this guy in the prime of his life who's a father, by the way, of three kids, killed savagely. And we still don't really have the person accountable and behind bars. And that troubles people. That always causes them to kind of say, man, what's the deal on this? So we, I think we, I think we come pretty darn close to having an answer in, in who killed Bob Crane, and that, and I'm, I'm so happy that um, they gave me the opportunity to retest this evidence and go there because nothing had happened in this case in 20 years. So I'm, I'm thrilled that we got a chance to do it. Yeah, and you should be very proud of your work. Last question, I promise. Uh, what one thing, maybe two things, should the police have done in 1978 that they didn't do that would have changed the outcome of this? Uh, two things. I think Scottsdale police got a bad rap, actually. That's, it's a little too convenient to say that Scottsdale police bungled this because the big mistakes, frankly, happened from the Department of Public Safety down here. When the car went to the lab, evidence that was collected was not secured and was lost or never collected at all. That is a huge problem. Um, the, the collection techniques at the time were sloppy. Um, and I, I just think that county attorneys were a little timid 
in putting John Carpenter on trial. And this was one of the issues the jury had, was that, you know, waiting 16 years to put the guy on trial really created problems. The jury is always going to say, why are we doing this 16 years after the murder? What's the deal? If you didn't have it then, I don't think you have it now. Um, you know what I mean? It, yeah. th- there, was, there were problems on all fronts. And well, and certainly if they had been a more, more aggressive uh, early on, they, may have, they would have had more evidence available to them to go back and, and maybe re-examine or reintroduce or however that works. I'm not a, you know, a criminal I, Yeah, person. I think you're right. I think if they tried this in 1979, we might have had a different result. Yeah. John, this is, a, again, fascinating discussion, a, a great book. It's called Who Killed Bob Crane? Where can people get a hold of it? Uh, you can get it on Amazon. That's the quickest way to get it. But I would also say, JV, visit the website, whokilledbobcrane.com. And this isn't just a shameless plug, because on that site, you've been there. It will help you when you read the book, get a visual of Crane's apartment, the crime scene. We've got a lot of video up there posted and pictures. And that helps the reader understand the layout of the apartment you you start to really get the visual that helps you with the it augments the book nicely. It's a great website, a lot of great resources there. Thanks, John, so much for joining me. Uh, one one last thing: any other uh, cases on your horizon uh, in your in your view that you might take a look at? Yeah, I've got one. Uh, I'm thinking about doing it. I've had to take a little break because these things, if you do them and you do them well, um, you've got to be all in. And yeah. I've got a young family. And it's a tough thing to, to commit the time to it, but I've got one in mind. Yes, I do. Great. John, thanks so much. I hope you will come back when the next one, uh, next book comes out. Love to, JV. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. I really enjoyed this conversation. I have a personal connection to this story. I don't mean I was involved, but I just was a real fan of Bob Crane, Hogan's Heroes, and the story always fascinated me. So it was a real pleasure to have him on. And thank you for listening and joining. Don't forget to stop by the social media and the YouTube page at JV Johnson's, which you have to search for. It's Beyond Reality Radio. We'll see you next time. Beyond Reality Radio is hosted by Jason Hawes and J.V. Johnson and produced by Alexandria Johnson and Slick Eddie Edwards for Intercom Radio. Beyond Reality Radio is distributed by Westwood One Radio Networks. Stop by our Facebook page and say hello. Follow the hosts on Facebook as well. For Jason Hawes, follow at JasonHawes.Taps. For J.V. Johnson, follow at JVJParanormal. If you'd like to be a guest on Beyond Reality Radio or you have a suggestion for a guest, contact Slick Eddie Edwards at SlickEddieEdwards at gmail.com. Be sure to visit our chat room as well at beyondrealityradio.com. Thanks for listening.